to sing praises to you. God, to open up your words and to learn from them and know who you are. We're not worthy for that, but you've given us the opportunity to. And so reward us, Lord, as we open up your word. Seek to know more about you. Become more like Jesus. God, just open our hearts to, uh, to be changed by your word today. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so yeah, like Grant said, this is the last week of our sermon series over Mark. And really, we've gone all the way through Jesus' life. It's almost like kind of reading a little biography about Jesus. Everything in his life, we've more or less gone over from even John the Baptist kind of paving the way for the Messiah to come. And then Jesus, in the first week, Kyle talked about uh, how he set the example of baptism for us. Preach, repent, and believe, and then just preach to, to thousands of people, perform miracles. We've been talking about that a lot. A lot of healings, water into wine, food for the multitudes, and he even raised the dead to life in his life. But, uh, but, but none of those are as good and as cool and as meaningful as what we're going to talk about today. And you guys might be able to guess that we're going to end up talking today about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that is the primary reason that Jesus came, and that's the primary reason that he took on flesh and came to earth, was to die and then to be resurrected. In fact, in, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be saved, or to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to earth for the cross. And so we're going to talk about that, but before we talk about that, I want to make sure that we're all kind of on a level playing field in how we see the cross. How do we view the cross? And so it's a basic biblical principle that whenever God does something, or even when God doesn't do something, his glory is a priority to him. It's a great priority to him. God's glory is at the center of his character and at the center of his will. And by revealing his glory to the world, what God is really doing is just revealing who he is to us. He's revealing his character, and he's revealing his nature, and that's how we receive God's glory. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, certainly, and we'll see a consistent theme of, the Bible says that God will do something for his namesake, and really it just means that he's doing it for his glory. In Psalm 23.3, it says, he restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. In Psalm 106.8, it says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And in Ezekiel 20.14, it says, But I acted, this is, this is God talking, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And so he restores, he leads, he saves, and he even acts against for his own glory. And now let's consider the cross in this context, the context of God's glory, because I fear that sometimes some of us might think that the cross is all about us. It might seem silly for me to even say that because, you know, oh, the cross is about Jesus, and we, we might believe that to an extent, but also every time we look at the cross, we can fall into a trap of, of just putting ourselves as the star of the show. And certainly, we are a piece of the puzzle. The cross is meaningful to us and for us. God loves us. Like, friends, God loves us. And I don't want to get that mixed up in me saying this. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God loves us because of who he is and not what we've done for God. And so in loving us, God reveals his glory through his love because we haven't earned it. And so to get the complete view of the gospel, we have to see the gospel from this viewpoint. We have to understand that his glory is a great priority. His glory was one of the primary reasons that he did this. And Jesus even knew this. As he said in John 17, this is when he's praying to the Father at the garden. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And despite how horrific the cross was, God was still glorified through it. We see it all throughout Scripture how much God was glorified through it. We, we see his characteristics on display. We see his mercy on the or through the cross explained in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. His wrath through the cross explained in 1 Peter 3.18. His holiness through the cross explained in Hebrews 7.26. His righteousness through the cross explained in Romans 3.25. His grace through the cross in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. His sovereignty through the cross in John 10, 18. His provision through the cross in Romans 6, 23. His truth through the cross in John 14, 6. His omniscience through the cross in Genesis 3, 15. And of course, his love through the cross in John 3, 16. And we see all of this and much, much more as salvation is accomplished through Jesus, to the glory of God, and for the good of God's people. And then we can contrast that about what the gospel says about us. Like, if we like to sometimes make the gospel about us, well, I think the gospel, first of all, reveals that we're not worthy of the glory that we love to give ourselves. We're not worthy of it. And then the gospel also reveals that the reason that we're valued by God is because God is good. It's not because he owes anything to us. He doesn't owe his love to us. We've done nothing to make him love us. And so the cool thing is, even the things that we learn about ourselves through the gospel point back to the glory of God. And this is how we can think about the gospel, meditate the gospel, and, and even share the gospel from a God-centered, God-glorifying lens. And it's my prayer that, that God would allow us to do that today. And so we're going to start reading in Mark 15, starting in verse 22. And, and while you're getting there in your Bibles, and it's going to be on the screen, I just want to catch us up to speed, because Grant went from uh, Mark 13, but from there to now, a lot has happened, all right? And so since then, since we left off, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Jesus and his disciples part have partaken in what's called the Lord's Supper, and at that, Jesus calls out Judas as the one who would betray him. He also calls out Peter as the one who would deny him. And then after that, Jesus and the disciples go into the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see this beautiful picture that we talked about in Life Group this week of, of Jesus agonizing and, and prayer to the Father, the Bible sentence of death by crucifixion. Not take it. Then they crucified him, and clothes, casting lots for them to decide which each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults to him, shaking their heads, yelling, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among them themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. 
Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. When it was noon, a darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. So for the sacrifice to have its, its fullest effect on us, I think we need to understand, at least as much as we can, the extent to which Christ suffered. And I see three main aspects of his suffering. There's the physical, there's the emotional, and there's the spiritual suffering. And all three present something different. The first that we're going to look at is actually, in my opinion, the lesser of the three types of suffering. And it, and it might seem weird because this type is also awful. But I think the physical suffering was the lesser of the three types of suffering that we're going to go over. And, and Zach actually covered some of this suffering, especially via the cross uh, a couple months back. So we're not going to get too into the details, but we are going to get into the details a little bit. Um, and I'm kind of squeamish, and this stuff kind of hurts me a little bit, um, but I think it should because it hurt Jesus, and it was awful. Um, and so if you are kind of like me in that way, I, I apologize, but I also don't apologize because I want it to be really impactful for us. Um, so when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he was taken to the Jewish courts, and from there, the Jews kind of had their way with him. They mobbed him, they beat him up, they treated him how they pleased. And then from there, he had to be handed over to the Romans. The Romans were the only ones with the authority to actually execute him. And so when he was taken to the Roman courts, it was there that he received what's called the Roman scourging. And when someone was scourged by the Romans, they were often stripped naked, and they were either tied up to a pole, or they were laid out flat on a surface. And really what that did was stretch out all the skin and flesh on their back, make sure it was exposed, and then they were whipped repeatedly with what was called a flagrum. And so you might, you might see a picture of it on the screen. A, a flagrum was a whip that had typically like an eight-inch wooden handle, and connected to that handle was three or more leather strips. And on those strips could be small pieces of metal, could be pieces of bone, and sometimes even, even fish hooks. And so the Roman soldiers would take turns standing one on each side of the victim with them tied up or laying down. They would strike the victim down with the whip, letting the metal pieces, the fish hooks, sink into the skin and then rip back, and often with it, bringing back flesh, bringing back muscle and tendons. It wasn't uncommon for bones and organs to be completely exposed by the end of this. It also wasn't uncommon at all for the victim to just die just from this before they even made it to the cross. And Jesus possibly endured multiple of these beatings. And, and in fact, we know it was, it was so bad, he was beaten so bad that he couldn't even carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. 
And then, of course, once they arrived there, he was nailed to the cross. We should probably actually say he was pegged to the cross because these aren't your little rinky-dink nails. These uh, are large nails. They're stakes. The evidence suggests that they would be anywhere from 7 to 12 inches, large enough to hold up a victim in place when they were completely limp, just by two places. He may have also been pierced through his feet or through his ankles. And in spite of all this, Jesus actually refused the mixture of wine and myrrh. And we see that in verse 23. And you might be wondering, like, what, what does that mean? I don't, that doesn't really make sense. That was actually a painkiller that the Romans would give people to make the cross a little bit more bearable. And he refused it. And Jesus hung on the cross for at least six hours, which compared to a normal crucifixion is really, really fast. Which is why most medical doctors, medical professionals who analyze the situation believe that Jesus actually died from blood loss and trauma rather than the usual suspect of, of suffocation. And then finally, for good measure, Roman soldiers pierced the side of Jesus, uh, the side of Jesus with a spear just to confirm that he was dead because the Romans had perfected the art of killing and inflicting pain. And part of that was to really punish whoever was the victim of, of this punishment, but also some of it was just to send a message. I mean, the Romans were cruel. They wanted to send a message that if you mess with Rome or if you, if you act out against Rome, this is what you get. And so the Romans created the most brutal, physically and visibly horrifying way to kill people. And this was the physical suffering of Jesus. But, like I said, I believe that the emotional suffering of Christ was actually more difficult. And I think what separates the physical suffering and the emotional suffering is the fact that the emotional suffering lasted for Jesus' entire life. Isaiah 53 prophesies the Christ to come, Jesus, as a man of sorrows. And in the Gospels, they often make note of Jesus being troubled in his spirit. And to start, that could have been because everywhere he looked, he saw the effects of sin and death. Everywhere he looked, he, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was enraged and angered by the money changers in the temple. Everywhere he looked, he saw sin and death. And I'm sure that caused his heart to hurt, as it should ours. But not only this, but more significantly, he lived with the knowledge of his suffering and death to come. Jesus knew, more or less, exactly how this was going to go down. And, and there's not a lot of people that I know that want to know when they're going to die. And if they did, they probably wouldn't want to know if this was the fashion that they were going to die. And, and you can even think of it from this perspective. Like, have you ever been in a place where you knew something bad was going to happen or something difficult was coming in your life? I mean, it could be a surgery. Uh, it could even be as easy or simple as a long week at work or, or a long week of school. And you, you stress about it and you think about it. You're nervous about it. It affects every part of your being. A lot of you guys know that, that person. So I'm in the Army, and uh, I've been in it for about six years. And when I first signed the papers to join... Uh, from that time until the time that I shipped out for, for my basic training was about two to three months. And in that two or three months, I was just frazzled the whole time. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep straight. 
I was just freaking out. I was scared and I was nervous. And really that was because I didn't know what to expect. And it's not because I, I went in blind. I, I looked up as much as I could about the training so that I could be as prepared as I could. But the reality is in something like this, you don't actually know until you're there. You don't actually fully experience it. And I think that Jesus experienced this kind of anguish on a much, much greater note than any of us have ever experienced it. I expect that every day as he looked upon the broken world, he was reminded of the wrath that was coming his way because of that brokenness. And then the sorrows of Jesus came to a climax in the garden. As we said, Jesus literally sweated blood. And again, that's, that's literal, that's not hyperbole or metaphor, he, he sweated blood, and medically, this, this is a thing, there's, there's record of it, but it's extremely rare, and doctors say in all cases that are, that are recorded about sweating blood, it always came right before extreme suffering or execution. Whoever was the one who was sweating blood, they knew they were about to go through extreme suffering or execution, and so this is right on par with what Jesus went through. He was in immense agony, anticipating the hour of his suffering as it drew closer and closer every, every minute. And then to add to the emotional suffering, it wasn't just up to the cross, but at, the, at his being arrested and through, because he was subject to, to mockery and taunts and jeers at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. You see, the Jews, of course, they hated him. He was the guy who wanted to uproot all of their systems. He wanted to kill their pride. He wanted to fix their eyes on God instead of fixing their eyes on themselves. And so they took out their anger on the guy who was trying to just uproot all of the things that they so well relished in. And for that reason, they spat in our Lord's face, punching him, kicking him, mocking him, joking about him. And even telling him to prophesy from which direction his beating was coming from. And to the Romans, Jesus was seen as an insurrectionist against Rome. He was the proclaimed king of the Jews. And the Romans hated the Jews. So, again, of course, they're going to take the opportunity to make an example out of this guy. And we see this actually recorded in Matthew 27, 27 uh, through 31. And I, I want to read this um, just sit and listen and, and think it. Try to picture this in your head, this happening to our Lord. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Then they put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, they took his staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes. And then they led him away to be crucified. And then, of course, it didn't stop at the, crucif uh, at the side of the crucifixion either. Because crucifixion was not only a physically horrible way to die, as we know, but it was an extremely shameful way to die. It was a very lonely way to die. It was custom for the, for the Romans to put a sign above the head of a victim or of a crucifixion victim that maybe would read their charge against them. So for Jesus's, it read sarcastically, of course, King of the Jews. 
And then while on the cross, spectators, they hurled insults at him like, he can save others, but he cannot save himself. Come down from the cross so that we may believe. And insults of this kind to like any human is probably good enough to enrage us. Like seeing this kind of treatment to any person, especially if we know that person's innocent, that's enough to kind of stir up our emotions. But this is God. This isn't just any person. This is a, a being that is infinitely more valuable than just a human. And to say these things to the God of the universe is desecrating and sacrilegious to God. Some of it was being made by his own people. And thinking about how he did this willingly, how if they say come down from the cross, he could have come down from the cross, but he did it willingly. Seeing the humility about that kind of makes me think about myself, makes me think of how often I neglect to share the gospel, or even how often I just give in to sin because I don't, I don't want to stick out, or I don't want to... I want, I want to fit in as much as I can. And, and really, the sinning part isn't exclusive to non-Christians. Sometimes we might make it about, oh, I only sin around non-Christians. But I can tell you countless amount of times where me personally, I've joined in on gossiping or crude joking or all sorts of kind of sin with a group of Christians because I didn't want to be the guy to rock the boat, to say, hey, hey maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this. I didn't want to be that guy. I just wanted to fit in. And so I see the example of Jesus Someone who actually deserves to be loved and actually deserves honor. And he humbly took all this. And then we look at me and probably us, who for the sake of our name, our name which has no power, our name which deserves no honor, we'll just try to do our own thing and, and we won't stand up for God's will. And so I hope that's a, at least a little bit convicting for us as we see this, we see the humility side of Jesus' suffering. And may we be convicted and convinced that we should stand up for the sake of God's glory and God's will. And so by this point, we, we've gone through the physical suffering, the emotional suffering. You're probably starting to get the picture, this, this is trash, we, this sucks. But the, the thing is, is people have been crucified like this before. People have been subject to, to this kind of emotional torment before, at least in the form of the mocking. And so the question begs itself of, of what makes Jesus different? You know, even Jesus told his disciples to, to be joyful in the midst of suffering. And we see his, the apostles and even later martyrs in the church who praise God on the way to their death and execution amidst much suffering, but yet we see Jesus agonizing in the garden. And so it kind of makes us think, what was different? Like, was Jesus not able to, to walk his talk? That's not the answer. So there must be another answer. And what really separates the suffering of the apostles and the martyrs to come and everybody else from the suffering of Jesus is the spiritual suffering that he went under. It's the fact that he drank the cup of God's wrath for all sins, for all people. And I believe Jesus' dread over the sufferings to come primarily hinged on this type of spiritual suffering that we're going to get into. And I get that, that this in itself is kind of an abstract concept. Like, we really are not going to be able to relate to this 
from a mental level or a personal level, but I just invite you to try to maybe, in a not weird way, put yourself in Jesus' shoes and try to understand what he was going through. Because again, this is, this is the pinnacle of his suffering, was this part right here. And I think his spiritual suffering may have been most clearly defined by his quote in verse 34 that we read. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in saying that, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And if you're just interested in the cool study, you should look up the parallels between Psalm 22 and Jesus' death. We don't have time for that right now, but I would look it up. But what did Jesus mean when he said this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to read a quote by a guy named John Stott. He wrote a book called The, uh, the Cross of Christ. He tries to maybe put a little bit of sense into this and explain this. It says, Up to this moment, though forsaken by men, he, being Jesus, could add, Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me, as he did in John 16, 32. In the darkness, however, he was absolutely alone, now being forsaken, or being God forsaken. So then, an actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son. It was voluntarily accepted by both the Father and the Son. It was due to our sins and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture which accurately described it. While this God-forsakenness was utterly real, the unity of the blessed Trinity was even then unbroken. And so in order for Jesus to have properly paid the price for sin, he had to be treated as a sinner. Treated as a sinner physically in the sense of a physical death and in the sense of a spiritual death that is all sinners away from Christ are bound for. And then I think we have two verses in the New Testament that kind of explain this well. First is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Galatians 3.13. says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so Jesus became the curse of sin for all people. And as a result of that, for the first time, Jesus experienced what it was like to be cut off from the Father. And there are a lot of layers to this. And we'll probably never completely understand the magnitude of what this really is. And I'm not afraid to say that I, I don't completely understand it. But I believe two things to be true. The first is that as Jesus hung on the cross, getting closer to his physical death, he also bore the spiritual wrath of God. Uh, John Calvin has a quote about this. He says, In Jerusalem that day hung a picture of hell. As the Son of God was cut off socially from everyone deserted emotionally on the cross and separated spiritually from the eternal father with whom he had always lived face to face. That is hell. And then the second truth we get is that Jesus, this happened without breaking the union of the Trinity. And I'm, I'm not going to go too much in that, 
I'd be happy to talk to you about it later. Um, that's a whole other rabbit hole in itself. But that also must be true because we know God and we know the way of the Trinity. And even without understanding everything about it, there are two coexisting things that go with it. They balance off of each other. The first is we can learn that being separated and forsaken by God is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you. And it's so bad that the worst possible physical execution, it would seem as if it paled in comparison to this kind of pain. Like, I'm sure Jesus didn't enjoy the cross and it wasn't fun, but in terms of his priority levels, it would seem as if the spiritual forsakenness was way higher on his priority list than the cross, and we'd just already gone over how the cross was horrible. So it's kind of unfathomable in that range. And then the secondly, secondly, in, in the good sense, it tells us that being in the presence of God is the greatest place we could ever be. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to us. And in fact, it's so great that the Son of God endured, endured this unimaginable suffering so that we, his people and his creation, could have access to it. It means that God is so good and his glory is so wonderful that all this suffering that we've talked about was worth it just so that we could get to experience God's glory. And he suffered all of this willingly because he loves us. He went there because of us, because of our sin, but he also went there for us to be saved by our sin. But of course, if we stop at the cross, that's a problem. Because if we stop at the cross, sure, we have forgiveness for sins, but we're still dead in our sins. We've still sinned before, and the penalty of sin is death, and so we need new life. And that's where the resurrection comes in, friends. This is the reason that the resurrection and the crucifixion are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other, because without the cross, there's no freedom from sin, but without the resurrection, there's no new life. And so the resurrection is the product of Jesus' payment. And you're going to hear me refer to that a lot as the cross being the payment and the resurrection being the product. And to kind of elaborate on this illustration, so if I try to go buy a car, I take a wad of cash, however much it takes to buy a car these days, and I walk into the dealer and I slap the money on the dealer's desk, and then I just walk out the door and I leave. I don't, I don't get the car, I just, here's the money and I leave. Well, then that's an example of the, me giving a payment, but me not getting the product. So it's kind of pointless for me to give the payment without getting the product, right? But, of course, if I go into the dealer's office, and I take the money, and I put it on his desk, and the dealer hands me the keys and says, here's your car, pal, congratulations. And I take the keys, and I go drive my car off. Well, now I know that the payment for the product was good. It worked. And so now I get the product for something that was paid for. And in 1 Corinthians, it calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that means that Jesus is, is the, pr the first product of this eternal life. In talking with Grant about this, he, he called him the prototype for this new life. But not only that, but also that Jesus, because of his payment, holds the key to new life for not only himself, but for everybody else. And Romans 8, 1 through 5, kind of talks about this new life. And, and maybe it was upsetting hearing the suffering of Christ, 
But, but this is the, the, the exciting part, all right? So Romans 8, 1 through 5 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus are no longer under God's judgment because of what Christ has done. You are free. You are, not, you are now controlled by the law of the Holy Spirit who gives you life. The law of the Spirit frees you from the law of sin that brings death. The written law was made weak by the power of sin, but God did what the written law could not do. He made his son to be like those who lived under the power of sin. God sent him to be an offering for sin. Jesus suffered God's judgment against our sin. Jesus does for us everything the holy law requires. The power of sin should no longer control the way we live. The Holy Spirit should control the way we live. And then, so as Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised everyone who, who would believe in him his Holy Spirit. If we believe in the name of Jesus, we have this Holy Spirit. And as people who have died to our sins, we believe in Christ, we have died to our sins, we are now controlled by the Spirit, we're no longer slaves to sin, and we can live to glorify God here and now. We have new life here and now. And we also have the promise that one day we'll be perfected anew and worship God forever. But I don't want us to shortchange the product of this new life. I don't want us to get in. The, I think this is a trap that Satan loves to spring on us, and he's done it to me personally. The the idea of, well, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I got the Spirit, but I'm not perfect yet, so I'm still gonna sin. So I got you know I can't be too hard on myself. I'm gonna try not to sin, but I, I still am probably gonna sin. And I, I see the truth in that, but how I see also how that's such a lie. And I see also how the enemy can use that to make us grow apathetic about sin. But we read all of this about how Christ suffered all of this for sin. And so how can we, as people who are freed from sin, look back at that and not just despise it and not understand the payment for that and not run away from it and not run in our freedom as the Holy Spirit provides new life for us and sanctification? As servants to Christ, we're no longer bound by sin. And we can trust the Spirit to sanctify us. We can trust that. We can call upon the Spirit to root sin out of our lives. And it won't be easy. Oh my goodness, it'll be well worth it. All this payment just so we could experience God's glory. And as we rid sin more and more, we experience God's glory more and more. And one of the coolest examples of someone who received this new life in Christ is the Apostle Peter. So Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, he was one of his closest friends. He was in, I call him the big three. It was him, James, and John. And while Peter was a decent disciple, there's also plenty of examples of him being a not-so-great disciple, or at the very least, him exposing his own pride and his own love for himself. And we see this at Peter's Worst moment, arguably, is he desires to save his own life. It leads him to deny Jesus three times as Jesus was arrested. And if you stop the story there, it would seem like Peter's a lost cause. It would seem like God's probably just going to give up on Peter because he denied Jesus. So. But that's not what happened. 
and the resurrected Jesus in John 21, we see this beautiful exchange where, where Jesus actually kind of restores Peter. Peter's humbled. He's probably dejected because he's looking at the Jesus that he just denied and then more or less said, I, I'm not with that guy. But Jesus restores him. He leads him to go and be one of the leaders of the, of the disciples. And in that, leads Peter to be equipped with the Holy Spirit. And from that moment, we see a completely radical transformation take place. And, and this is why the fact that we have the Spirit is a big deal. Like, this is one of those examples of just a radical transformation from he gets the Spirit, and then as soon as he receives the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he's the one who preaches the message that goes on to have thousands of converts. And he goes from a coward who would just like to save his own life at the expense of one of his best buddies to someone who would look in the face of his oppressors and the people wanting to kill him and proclaim the gospel boldly. In Acts 4, he says, we can't help but talk about the things that we've seen pertaining to Christ. He just can't help it. It just flows out. It just comes out because he's filled with the Spirit, continually rejecting and denying that pride in itself. And we know, of course, that Peter would go on to be a martyr for the sake of the gospel. So he would go to complete the race and to give his life boldly for the sake of the gospel. And this type of death-to-life transformation, it's something that God desires for us and it's something that is available to us. Don't just look at, and say, oh, that's Peter. Peter's a G. He's too good. Like, this type of death-to-life transformation is what God desires for us. And it's what Jesus purchased for us. He didn't purchase it so that we could leave it behind. He didn't put the money on the table so we could leave without the keys. He purchased it so we could have it. And so in closing, I want to encourage you guys with a couple options. For those of you who are not believers, for those of you who haven't made the decision to follow Jesus yet, of course I'm going to tell you that today is the day. Today is always the day. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. I'm not trying to be morbid. We could die before we hit the parking lot. Today's the day for that. There's going to be people wanting to pray with you in the back and on the sides. I'll be back there, talk to somebody about that. But I'm going to offer a secondary option because maybe, maybe that's not something that you want to do today. You don't feel ready. I encourage you during this time of musical worship to try to pray. You might say, well, I don't, I don't know how to pray. You might not even believe that prayer works. But I just challenge you, just try it. You're here, so try it. I invite you to just pray, call out to God. You can say, God, if you're real, is this true? Is this, this Bible true? Is what the Bible says about me true? And is what the Bible says about you true? Because if it is, I need you to show me. So I pray that you would just, you would listen if you need to, you would pray if you need to, you would talk to somebody if you need to. Don't leave without figuring this stuff out, guys. Don't do that. And then for everybody else, my prayer for you is that on the heels of, of learning about Christ's suffering, the payment for sin, just how horrific and awful it was, I pray that it would impact us. It would impact us in fleeing from sin and seeing the seriousness of sin, running away from it because we understand the price that it costs. And at the same time, I pray that we step into the new life 
that has been purchased for us and has been made available to us. And just as Grant was talking about all the opportunities that we're going to have in this next two or three weeks, I pray that we're bold in proclaiming the gospel. We may not face much much, a lot of persecution, but if there is any, even if it's like my friends may not like me, man, I pray that we're bold. Man, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just give us what it takes to deny that flesh and to glorify God and that we would meditate and see the gospel in light of God's glory and that that would cause us to action. So pray with me if you would. God, you're holy and you're righteous, Lord, and, and we see so many of your beautiful characteristics on the cross. We learn so much about you through your word. So God, I pray that you would use this time of worship and as we get ready to take communion, Lord, that you would just pierce our hearts. You would tell us what we need to be told, convict us, encourage us, Lord, root sin out of our lives, that people would mend relationships here and now. God, that you would just empower us to do your work we would glorify you with everything we have, God. So, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and, and give us the desires of your heart as we seek to worship you and glorify you in everything we do.